Dear listener, you are now listening to Black Box Theater Podcast, a podcast where we give the microphone to artists who in one way or the other are connected to the theater. During Oslo Internationale Teaterfestival 2021, we are releasing our Black Box Theater publication number six, and besides being a physical book, the five contributions in the publication are made listenable in this podcast series. Each contribution will be released as an episode of the podcast. While listening to the podcast, you can also have a look in the book and the illustrations in it at blackbox.no. In the publication, we invited eight contributors to give us insight in their own ways into their artistic practice, personal stories and current public debates. Each of the contributors helped to enlighten us and pick our curiosity so that we hopefully can think in new directions. You are now about to listen to these people read and talk about their own contributions. Every second day during the festival, a new episode will be released. In this episode, you will hear Eivind Haugland read his text about not leaving reality in peace. During the last couple of years, it has become obvious how the poetry and uniqueness of art disappear when the media read it too literally. One tendency is to ridicule or attack art by taking the elements out of the context and reducing them to their simpler expression, to a mere description. Furthermore, these simplified narratives can be power tools in the public debate about art. Eivind Haugland works as a dramaturg at Badisches Stadttheater Karlsruhe. We invited him to reflect upon these issues from his position of being Norwegian and living and working in Germany. In a time when artistic freedom is under pressure, we would like to investigate the value of art as a space of fiction. How do we differentiate fiction and reality, poetic spaces and space for interpretation? Haugland starts with the lockdown in Germany and Norway and writes about how stories about the arts are dealt with in the media and in the cultural institutions themselves. Not Leaving Reality in Peace by Eivind Haugland On November the 2nd, German society was again partially shut down as a result of the new wave of corona infection. While trade was more or less allowed to continue as normal, restaurants, hotels and everything else that falls under the general term of leisure had to close. According to German authorities, leisure includes theatres, opera and concert halls, Fairs, cinemas, lesser parks such as amusement parks, zoos, etc., spa centers, swimming pools and saunas, casinos and, last but not least, brothels. It is further emphasized, quote, all entertainment events are prohibited, end quote. German authorities thus clearly do not consider the field of art and culture as bearing anything more than a basic function of amusement. Aside from the poorly concealed authoritarianism, the wording also implies 
when there is a lockdown, it shall be boring. We are talking about a cultural nation that has had an enormous influence on the international art and cultural scene for several centuries, which has nurtured some of the world's most influential thinkers and artists, and whose orchestral and theatrical landscape in 2018 was proposed as a nomination to the UNESCO World Heritage List. The nomination shows that theatres and orchestras are important arenas for free expression, public debate and critical reflection, stated Michel Mintefeiring, Minister of State at the Federal Foreign Office. What has happened since then? When did art and cultural institutions change from being important arenas for reflection on the society we live in to being regarded as lesser activities on an equal footing with gambling and prostitution? During the corona crisis, it has become even clearer how linguistic characteristics can have consequences for an entire field. It was therefore a small victory when on November the 19th it was accepted that art and cultural institutions can no longer be defined as lesser activities in infection control issues, but must be treated separately as an independent field. However, art and culture are still defined as voluntary activities in the German municipal budgets and will therefore be the first field to experience cuts when the Corona bill has to be paid. Bamberg and Munich have already announced cuts in subsidies to their theatres of respectively 2.5 and 6.5% in the 2021 budget and there is reason to believe that more will soon follow. Although it is frustrating to be shut down when solid hygiene practices have been developed, no one denies that strict measures with sometimes major consequences are required to quell the pandemic. Nevertheless, it is demand to be taken seriously as system-relevant agents that has been the primary issue in the fight for the German art and cultural field. Already during the first lockdown in April, Ulrich Kuhn, theater director at the Deutsches Theater in Berlin and president of the Deutsche Bühnenverein, the German equivalent of a NTO, stated that Quote, art can give society foothold and therefore help to create hope again. We can contribute to society in such a way that it does not become isolated and disintegrate. End quote. At the same time, Thomas Ostermeyer, theater director at the Schaubien in Berlin, expresses his frustration in an article in the weekly newspaper Die Zeit on November 12. Quote, it irritates me how many theater people experience the interruption as a personal offense. Our complaint does not stand in relation to the need that prevails at intensive care units. Quote end. According to Ostermeyer, many people fail long theater closures because they are afraid the audience will forget them, which for him is completely incomprehensible. Quote, I do not understand how one can have so little faith in the importance of one's own work. Quote end. Identity crisis. It can appear as though the corona crisis has provoked an identity crisis in German theatre. Through the imposed shutdown of the large and at times overproductive German theatre machine, one has, for the first time, had time to properly reflect on one's own role in society and how to manage it. At the Staatstheater Karlsruhe, where I am employed, the identity crisis developed yet another nuance. While the facade of the theatre is characterized by the first article in the German constitution, Die Würde des Menschen ist unattasbar, human value is unassailable, the standstill that took place during the first lockdown 
help trigger a leadership crisis, during which the theater directors, at time choleric and brutal treatment of the staff, leaked to the media and eventually contributed to his dismissal in late November. However, the theater director's abuse of power would not have been possible in the first place without the almost feudal structures and poor working conditions and rights of artistic employees that characterize the German theater landscape. So, the theater's self-image suffered yet another setback. It's not sufficient to be a moral institution that thematizes the imbalances within society if you cannot first get rid of the skeleton in your own closet yourself. In many ways, it is easy to see the German theatre field's pronounced identity crisis as the culmination of decades of marginalization of a general knowledge of art in the population. At the same time as the example from our own theatre shows, there have been, until recently, few real attempts by the theatres to renew themselves in step with the development of society. Of course, this applies not only to one's own work structures, but also, and perhaps first and foremost, to artistic production. Few German theatres are located in Berlin, and both the German grey-haired core public and the German conceding politicians are more conservative than one might think. The identity crisis therefore is also partly a self-inflicted crisis, in that one is unable to make oneself relevant to large segments of the population. Amelie Deufelhardt, theatre director at Kampnagel in Hamburg, accurately describes it in the weekly newspaper Der Freitag. Quote, when the doors open again, we cannot simply continue as before. Instead, we must look critically at whether we can manage to take care of our own role as social arenas in a reality that is constantly changing and become more accessible even to those who have not so far spent their free time in the theatre. We must not be afraid of losing the audience, but rather seek out new audiences and continue working on topics that the pandemic has made even more visible." End quote. From my life abroad, however, I observe a Norwegian performing arts field that is already moving in this direction. It is more political, more complex and more experimental than ever. Thanks to increased funding and an artistic development that has spread from the independent field and the programming theatres to the major theatre institutions. Now there is more interaction in the entire field and reality is no longer left in peace, neither thematically nor aesthetically. In my eyes, there is little to suggest a similar identity crisis in Norwegian theatre. A general knowledge of art in retreat? Nevertheless, through the media and in various social channels, one can get the impression that even parts of the Norwegian performing arts field occasionally struggle to legitimize their own justification. When Black Box Theatre contacted me about writing this text, they referred to this, quote, Art definitely carries a speculative power. How is it when these layers of complexity enter the realm of media social media? When they are barely reduced to the most simple expression, a descriptive one, without any double or multiple meaning. And they conclude, in this time when art is under pressure in many countries, we would like to investigate the value of art as space for fiction. How do we differentiate fiction and reality, poetic spaces, space for interpretations, End quote. At the time when tabloid headlines and social media dominate our everyday lives to such a large extent, these are all relevant questions. 
Despite the fact that art may hold a unique position in terms of how meaning is produced and communicated, at the same time these are not questions that are limited to this field alone. Especially in social media, most things are simplified. Politics, science and almost everything else with a minimum of causal connection. On the other hand, neither the art field nor any other fields are slow to resort to simplified messages when it benefits themselves. Theatre's marketing departments have long been experts in picking out those sub-sentences from performance critics that have the greatest sales potential, although they even do not necessarily reflect the breadth of the critics' reasoning. As we anyhow have minimal influence on how art is used and abused in public, I think it is more interesting to look at the reasons why the general knowledge of art is possibly on the waning front also in Norway. It is easy to indicate connections that are outside the control of the performing arts. The daily newspapers continue to downplay cultural material and professional art criticism, and leave the responsibility for a so-called low-threshold art discourse to blogs and social media, while NRK cuts specialized arts and cultural programs. The investment in the Kulturelle Skolesekken, a national program designed to ensure that all schools in Norway experience professional art and cultural of all kinds, has not led to the aesthetic subjects becoming more important in school, perhaps rather the opposite. The humanities are under pressure at universities, and some have been closed down completely. Theatre studies in Oslo were phased out in 2012. In step with the economization of society, the cultural field is also increasingly expected to adopt a business mindset, where increasing demand for house income and, as a result, higher ticket revenues contribute to the exclusion of several social groups. Quick summary. After the NRK monopoly was abolished in the 80s, the internet arrived in the 90s, and social media, blogs and common fields broke through during the 2000s. After public space greatly expanded, possibility of choice widened and diversity of opinion was strengthened, it is experienced, paradoxically enough, as if both the concrete art experience and the common conversation around it has become less accessible to the public, and thus made it a simple populist exercise to present the art field and certain works of art as elitist, incomprehensible, and irrelevant to the everyday life of so-called most people. At the same time, it is important to emphasize that the narrative of an art field that moves away from most people is first and foremost a populist narrative that is difficult to accept without further ado. I would rather dare say that art has never been more accessible to most people as in the last 20 years, thanks to the investment in, for instance, the Kulturelle Skole Sekin. However, this does not mean that the understanding of various artistic expressions therewith increases without further ado, thanks to the flourishing of cultural houses and other art venues throughout the country, an economic strengthening of the art field from the state and private sector, and more. It is rather a society that is much less homogeneous now than before, and thank goodness for that. And the group dialogue is just a nostalgic memory from the days when everyone discussed Tuesday's television theater during Wednesday's lunch. Did that really happen, or is it just what people say when they remember the good old days? Turning point for the public art discourse. The art field has a responsibility not to trip itself up. In 2012, I criticized a former member of the Hedda Jury after he appeared in a major 
Norwegian newspaper and happily boasted that one of the city's theaters avoided what he called alternative, narrow and strange Norwegian and foreign contemporary theater, without a closer definition of what this was. Much has happened since then, but the mechanism in the aforementioned wording appears time and time again, also among artists and administrative staff at performing arts institutions, and this makes us easy prey. Because, while we attempt to make ourselves gorgeous and relevant to the public we fear we have lost along the way, we in part take on the populist rhetoric and thus lead the debate mainly on the populist premises, something that does not contribute to anything other than confirm the prejudices which already exist. Therefore, I also do not readily accept the premise that it is the simplified anti-art rhetoric suggested by populist politicians and individuals that dominates today's public art conversation and thus runs away with art's own narrative. Yes, there have been a number of examples of artworks taken out of context and artists ridiculed and abused in populist anti-art agendas. And yes, it is true and disappointing that large and normally enlightened media agents have often almost taken over these narratives directly and thus help to support and spread these agendas in the public arena. We experienced an initial low point when an almost united press, with some honorable exceptions, and critically devoured the right-wing narrative about the play Ways of Seeing without having seen the show. This was not only frustrating on art's behalf, but it also had potential for serious consequences given the death threats the participating artists received as a result. With all the attention the show received and still receives, it is no wonder that its reception currently dominates our impression of the public art discourse. At the same time, we often forget, consciously or unconsciously, whether or not we allow this impression to take permanent hold. This is not a recop report of the daily press and cultural journalism, but in my experience, the quality of performing arts criticism in several of the major media has increased considerably over the last few years. The Norwegian Art Council's new support scheme, Tidskrift og Kritik, Journal and Criticism, where I myself sit on the committee, will hopefully also contribute to strengthening both the general and the subject-specific art discourse. After Laila Nita Bartheusen was charged with attacks against herself, Tul Mikkelvara and the couple Tybringjede, and after the trial has revealed exactly what the artists behind the performance wanted to direct focus on, it may actually turn out that the debate around ways of seeing represents a turning point in the public art discourse, at least concerning the performing arts field, no matter what the outcome of the trial. Because where the media and certain politicians, including the Prime Minister, initially made hasty conclusions and fixed responsibility on the artists, the debate has become more complex as the case played out. Ways of seeing not only reveal the network of right-wing politicians intent on gagging artistic freedom and their supporters, but ultimately also laid bare the public art discourse. Anti-art rhetoric, not necessarily just a bad thing. In Belgium, the Flemish theater Antigent, led by the Swiss director Milo Rau, has recently published the book Why Theater, where they asked over a hundred key artists from around the world to answer this very question. 
the Belgian director Luc Perceval, who recently won the Hedda Prize for the play Trilogien at the Norske Teatre in Oslo, is one of those who answered, quote, asking the question why theatre is not as innocent as it seems. It is an echo of the canon of neoliberal thinking, one of many. That way of thinking only accepts what pays off. In that context, as a theatre maker having to explain the why the sense of theatre is essentially to bow one's head before that utilitarian thinking. It feels as if you end up in the defendant's chair and are forced to prove your innocence. Quote end. As I see it, one has two choices. One can either choose to bow to the idea of an anti-art opinion and thus place oneself in a defensive position, where one is doomed to lose, or one can spend one's energy on the overwhelming majority who see the value of a vibrant art life. That art has obviously become so omnipresent and provokes so, so much that they call for a fight against artists, I choose to take as a good sign. This means that art does what is supposed to, that it picks away at established truths, challenges reality and refuses to give in. This means that art does what it is supposed to, that it picks away at established truths, challenges reality and refuses to give in. How is it when these layers of complexity enter the realm of media, social media, when the contents are made flat? It is not art's responsibility to improve media or educate those who write about it. Art should instead always respond with what it is good at, making more art. Pia Maria Roll, Sarah Baban, Hanan Benamar and Birgitte Sigmundstad do exactly the right thing when, true, ways of seeing TV, they use artistic means to comment on the ongoing trial and the position of art in society. It is also liberating to see how Vegar Vingen, Ida Müller, engage an entire village in Fotballspiele in Theaterfestivalen in Fjallir, where on hindsight the most critical voice belonged to a participant in the field and concerns working conditions. At the same time, it appeared as though the current Netavisen journalist and former advisor of the populist politician Sylvie Listau, Espen Teigen, had difficulty finding something to complain about in the show and therefore, seemingly reluctantly and without irony, settled for praising Vigne for having made a, quote, patriotic performance. Fiction and reality. In 2000, the now deceased German legendary director and enfant terrible, Christoph Schlingensief, organized the art action Ausländer raus, Foreigners out during Wiener Festwochen. The right-wing populist party, FPÖ, had for the first time become part of an Austrian government, a party that was hotly debated, but also applauded for their anti-immigrant stance. In front of the entrance to the Vienna Opera, one of the most prominent places in the city, Schlingensief placed a container decorated with a sign stating Ausländer raus, the FPÖ's party flag and the logo of the tabloid newspaper Kronenzeitung, which is as good as the FPÖ's party newspaper. Inspired by Big Brother, who just had its heyday, he locked 12 asylum seekers in a container and filmed them 24 hours a day. On the internet, the audience could follow the broadcast, comment on the action and not least vote out one participant every day. He was in fact sent out of the country. The winner received a cash prize and the opportunity to marry for a resident permit. If, 
someone volunteered their services during the campaign. If not, then a plane ticket out of the country was sponsored. Prominent personalities such as Elfriede Jelinek, Gregor Gysi and Peter Schlotterdijk visited a container or commented on the action. It was all followed by thousands of people on the street and online. The website had 70,000 visits already the first day and triggered a storm of reactions and hateful attitudes. The cynicism of asylum policy became extra clear. It is hardly possible to demonstrate more clearly the link between the staged cynicism of the television medium and objective cynicism of a society that ignores moral values and judges asylum policy based on its ability to create a majority, the journalist Jens Jessen concluded in the Zeit. The confrontational power of art is a core theme also for the French author Edouard Louis. In Wyatt Theatre he writes, Theatre can be so powerful in forcing people to see what they usually avoid, what they have built exit strategies for or against to not watch or not listen. Often people try to avoid being confronted with reality. Confrontation is what interests me about theatre. How do we differentiate fiction and reality, poetic spaces, spaceful interpretations? Christoph Schlingensief is just one of many artists who show how art is perhaps at its most effective when it invades reality and significantly does not differentiate between fiction and reality, but rather consciously plays on an unclear distinction. In many ways, such an art strategy also makes itself less vulnerable to populist and anti-art rhetoric because a larger audience gains ownership of the art experience and its many interpretive levels, something which inevitably leads to the anti-art rhetoric revealing itself and thus being disarmed. The same goes for ways of seeing, and although both this performance and Ausländer Raus had a media and politician as its target, the same principle is basically valid for all works of art that function in this field of tension. For instance, just take a look at the Nunos Kunstmuseum and the museum performance Sami Daida Museum or the exhibition Like Betsy. By respectively constructing a fictional Sami art museum and seemingly replacing a public statue of Lual Amundsen with a forgotten female nature painter Betsy Arkstadt Berg, the museum allowed fiction to intervene in reality and thus made the art relevant to a larger and partly new audience. The Solidary Art in today's fragmented reality, we need art more than ever as a unifying social and discursive arena. However, this presupposes an art field that unifies and does not itself succumb to populist and hostile rhetoric when one disagrees. Misunderstand me correctly, professional disagreement and debate are both good and desired, but you know, then it is the thing about practicing what you preach. In Germany, at least a theater's identity crisis and a social climate that is one again strongly influenced by right-wing radical currents after, among other things, the far-right party AfD, Alternative für Deutschland, fully entered German politics in 2013, has ensured a flourishing of solidarity movements and a greater political awareness in the arts field and the performing arts field. One example is the association Ensemble Netzwerk, Ensemble Network, where actors, directors, set designers, playwrights and other artistic professions within theatres together fight to improve working conditions by actively pointing out the discrepancies in the theatre's moral self-image.
Other examples are organizations such as Die Vielen, The Many, which brings together independent artists and institutions in the field of performing arts and visual arts in a common struggle for an open, inclusive and pluralistic society. One of their stated goals is to be a support body for everyone in the field of art and cultural who is exposed to right-wing populist and right-wing extremist attacks. It is particularly interesting that both Ensemble Netzwerk and the Fielen primarily use artistic strategies in their work. These two organizations are examples of solidarity movements which, on art's own terms and with art's own methods, have already had a great influence and may prove to be decisive for German theatre being something to be reckoned with also in the future. I am fundamentally optimistic about art, both in Norway, Germany and the rest of the world. Whether we are talking about a German theatre that is struggling to find its place or Norwegian art taking a beating on social media and used as a pawn in political games, by relentlessly continuing to explore reality, find the grey zones, see confrontation and promote radical diversity, art will emerge strong. Translated into English by Gillian Carson. You heard Eivind Haugland read about not leaving reality in peace, a text from Black Box Theater publication number six. To you who have listened, thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate feedback, so feel free to send us a message or use our hashtag BBT podcast in social media. Stay tuned for the next episode of Black Box Theater podcast.